Okay, so, <clears throat> so imagine this scene in your mind, okay? Um, you are a Christian living in a society that is basically secular, polytheistic for the most part, where the idea of one God as ruler over all is absurd and considered to be an arrogant idea. Uh, imagine that the authorities consider Christianity as subversive and potentially dangerous. Uh, with Christianity and its insistence on only one God, Christianity would seem to threaten the principle of religious toleration. More importantly, Christianity would be a religion that clashes with the official state religion of the government, which was that Christians, as, along with everyone else, should demonstrate their loyalty first to the rulers of the state over their own God. Now, in this kind of setting, just imagine that the rulers, they have not yet set an official law that made Christianity illegal. However, the overarching consensus felt that Christianity was a problem. Imagine that you were hated on, not even by the governing authorities directly, but by your own neighbor. You were misunderstood. You were often falsely accused of crimes. You were considered stupid and ignorant. Now, to make the setting more complicated, imagine that this society that I've just described is actually a society that is very familiar to you. Imagine this is a place that you have grown up in all your life a place in which the principles that make up its culture have been handed down to you by your parents and their parents. And it's all that you know. And this wasn't a problem for you growing up, but at some point in your life, you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it transforms you in such a way that you gradually begin to feel a disconnect from society and the society that you live in. And it begins to... Uh, affect the way that you uh, live in this society. It gets harder to find common ground in the world around you, not because you're better than them, but that you've received grace from God through the revelation of his word, and your heart has been transformed. So you have no choice but to feel different. Your desires are drawn to obedience to Christ, while the world submits to the gratification of their own desires. These are two completely different paths. So, what's the logical result of this? The result is that you're considered a foreigner in this land, an exile from another land. You're an alien. This is 2016. And this is 2016, yeah. Right. <laughs> and worst of all, this eventually results in persecution. Now this is, this sounds familiar, right, 20, 2016, but uh, this is the same kind of setting that we see in 1 Peter. Uh, this is what the church was facing in, in Peter's letters as we, as we read 1 Peter and, and 2 Peter. Peter, okay, is writing to Jews, but also to Gentiles who are now one in Christ and are living in these kinds of circumstances. And this is the point of the whole letter, that Christians are pilgrims in this world. This world as it is now is not home. Uh, we seek a better country, as it says in Hebrews eleven sixteen. Can someone read that?
Hmm. So in other words, we, Christians, are of the city of God, as Augustine would say, and not of the city of man. Now it's interesting that Peter begins his letter with such a strong emphasis on our position in Christ. And you'll notice that once we get into it, the beginning, the whole first chapter, half of it at least, is beginning with this explanation of our position in, in Christ. For example, right after his intro, he jumps right into the gospel. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he goes on through verse 9, affirming the truths about the hope that we have in the person and work of Christ. Then we also see in verses 10 through 12, Peter points out how the prophets of old searched and inquired carefully of the coming Messiah that has finally been revealed to those in Peter's time. And even to us today as we have the testimonies of Christ in our scriptures, right? We are on a, a good point in history where we can look back, we can open up our Bibles and see uh, all that those of the Old Testament prophesied would come. We, do, we have record of, of the promised one coming, Jesus Christ, and fulfilling all that was spoken of in the Old Testament. Uh, but today specifically, I want us to go through verses 13 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, just open to 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 21. And in these verses, uh, Peter is now telling his readers what they must do and how they ought to live in light of everything that he just said right before it. Everything he said about the gospel. Uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, Desmond, Pastor Ron, and Pastor Rick have been covering those, those first few verses. And again, that, it, it was, there was a strong emphasis on the work of Christ. Now, as we get into today's section, um, in light of everything that was spoken of, we're going to see how we ought to live and what we ought to do in response to, to what we read. How should a Christian whom society rejects live in this world in light of what Christ has done? That's the point of uh, 1 Peter uh, 13 through 21. So let's, let's go ahead and read it. Can someone uh, read the, the passage? If you can see it. Amen. Um, so today in our time, I want to look at that passage and I want to focus on three imperatives that we see in this, this passage. Um, you'll see it in your handout. By the way, I'm, I'm going to hand some out.
on the handout, you'll see three points. Uh, and these are three imperatives that we see in the passage. Uh, point number one is set your hope fully. And that theme, that point, is based off of verse 13. Uh, point number two is be holy. That's found in verse 15. And point number three is fear our Father. That's, that's uh, found in verse 17. Those are the three key imperatives that we see uh, in this passage. So let's begin with the first imperative. Point number one is set your hope fully. And uh, beginning with verse 13, we see that Peter starts off with the word therefore, which usually indicates that what he's about to command should be considered and thought through in light of what he's been saying before. And so as we read on, we see that Peter is basically exhorting his readers to live godly lives. And this is a pattern that you'll see often in the New Testament in Paul's writings. They usually begin with an indicative, right? An indicative would be what God has done for us in Christ. And then it follows with an imperative, which is how we should live our lives in response to that reality. And you'll see that a lot in Paul's letters in the New Testament, where he'll, he'll speak about what Christ has accomplished, how God, before the foundation of the world, preordained that mission, all that was done in, in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ, he, he would explain it as, as a indicative. And then right after, it'll be, therefore, because of this reality, this is how you ought to live. Now that order, the way that I placed it, that order, the indicative first and then the imperative after, that order is important to recognize, okay? Uh, because if you mix that order, it could result in a works righteousness form of interpreting the Bible. For example, a bad reading of the Bible would be if you assume that we should live holy lives so that it would result in salvation. But that's not how the authors of Scripture do it. That's not how they explain. That's not how they form the order. Uh, Peter starts, you'll notice in the passage, Peter starts with what God did first. Uh, you'll see in verse 3, by saying that he has caused us to be born again, right? He, he starts with that concept. You also see in verse 5, uh, where it says, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for salvation, right? So these are, these are the acts of God, and it's not until you get to verse 13 that Peter then says, what, therefore, you know, live like this. So keep that order in mind. That's, that's the way that we see it in Scripture. Now, going back to the text, Peter begins by saying, therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's our first command, our first imperative. Now question, what, what does he mean when he says preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded? What do you think he's saying to believers? The floor is open. Be in the Word. Be in the Word? Fill the word. Okay, yeah, fill yourself with the Word. What else? Right? So sober-minded, being clear-minded, right? Right, not, not a blind faith. There, the, the mind is, it's required that our minds be put to action. Right. What's that, self-control? Yeah, very good. Are you asking the, the prepare for action? Yeah. Uh, I would say that's, you know, prepare for the deeds of the 
-hmm. mentally prepare for that. Yeah. Don't be surprised by these, these truths, yeah? Yeah. So, uh, Peter was not merely saying that believers, uh, when he says being sober-minded, he's not talking about, you know, refraining from being drunk, right? When you think sober, we think about the bar. But uh, he's not talking about that sort of thing. Um, actually, a very literal translation uh, for that is prepare uh, for prepare your minds for action would be gird up the loins of your mind, which means to tuck your flowing garments so that you can run and do some serious work. Right? Uh, an example that we see of that kind of language is First Kings eighteen forty six. It says, "And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments. Right? He picked them up and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Jezreel. So." As a metaphor, in a sense, it tells us that we need to take hold of our thoughts, right? This is a call for believers not to be mentally lazy, right, or distracted. Um, and that actually may come as a shock to some people who assume that the totality of Christianity or the Christian experience is, is, is solely about emotions. Now, I understand that we're not just brains on a stick, but... Here we read that Peter is calling believers to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. And when Peter says that we ought to be sober-minded, he's not, again, he's not talking about the bar. Peter recognizes that there's a way of living that can make you become dull to the reality of God. And, and like uh, Ron said, uh, the, the promises that, that, the, that Christians will suffer persecution because Christ suffered that um, is something that they had to take a hold of, especially in their context. Uh, but, but again, Peter... Oh, I'm sorry. I don't think you can separate it from the next word, which says to set yourself fully on the grace of God. That's right. Because it's only through his grace that you can go for it. Amen. Yep. And you make a good point, because that, when we, when we, uh, when we uh, strengthen our mind and focus our mind, the object that we are to place our thoughts on is exactly that. And you see that right after, you see he speaks on it right after that. Um, and again, uh, when, when people are lulled, right, in, in their thinking, like a, kind of like a, a drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ uh, and are fully concentrated on fulfilling their earthly goals. And it's easy for people, especially during times of trial, to get distracted or, or want to be distracted. And I think that's the case here in America as well. That it, 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 it's hard to be a Christian, and, and just bringing it back to our context, it's hard to be a Christian in a society that rejects it, that considers you stupid. Um, it's not socially accepted in a sense. Uh, and so 
it's, it, it, it can be discouraging and it's easy for us to be swayed away and just prefer the distractions of the world. Uh, and I think Peter recognizes that there is a way of living that can make you become dull to the reality of God. And the anesthesia, right, is the attractions of the world. When people are lulled to this kind of drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ and end up focusing on the temporal, uh, temporal things, their desires and the things that they want to accomplish here on earth. Now, specifically in the context of Peter and what we're reading here, he was addressing these matters to believers who are facing persecution and being mistreated for being a Christian. And again, in that context, uh, there were still a need for believers to be reminded to prepare their minds for action and be sober-minded. So we need, that, we need to hear that today. They needed to hear that in their context. And it goes to show the nature of man and, and how easily we can be swayed away or discouraged um, and not focus on, on the specific thing that we're called to focus on. And we, we'll see that as we go down. Uh, but again, even in our context today, how many of us are easily swayed by the spirit of age, right? The zeitgeist, the ideas and the ways of thinking in our time. And it's interesting how even in Christian circles, the ways of the world can find its way in the church and often inform how we do life as a Christian. But we must guard from that and allow God's word to work and to inform all that we know and all that we do. Uh, we see in Romans 12 too, uh, God calls us to be transformed. Uh, and can someone read that? Romans 12 too. Right, so this is what Christians are called to do, to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, back to, our, back to Peter. Uh, this imperative that we read in verse 13 is calling believers to set their hope fully on something specific, right? To set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the object of our focus. When it's calling us to, to gird up the loins of our mind, it's talking about put your focus on the coming of Christ. That sounds simple, like, oh, so you mean that as a Christian, my only focus should be like end times, like the coming of Christ, and that's the end of the story? Uh, well, yes, but there's so much packed under that, and we're going to talk about it. So again, the heart of this command for believers, right, to set our hope in the return of Christ, is that there is a, the, the life that we live now, right, everything that we do now, whether at work or in church or with our families, it should all be fueled by the motivation that Christ will return on the last day to bring forth the consummation of all things in him, right? Believers need to be driven by the fact that every wrong will be made right on that last day. Isn't that a good truth? I think those who are being persecuted, um, that church that Peter was writing to, imagine how good that must feel when your pastor's telling you, I know you're suffering, I know you're going through these trials, but remember that all the injustices that has happened to you in your life, Jesus Christ is coming back and he will make all things right. He's not going to make all things right by hugging everyone. He's going to make all things right by bringing justice 
those who have committed crimes and sins against the Lord in every way, even if they didn't acknowledge God when they did it, will receive their due penalty. And that includes us unless we're hidden in Christ. So again, another quick evangelistic opportunity. If you're not in Christ, um, you will receive justice too as well. Why? Because we all deserve justice. But imagine how good justice must feel for those Christians who are suffering under persecution. And Peter's calling them to to focus your mind. Focus your mind on the coming of Christ. Believers need to be driven by the fact that every wrong will be made right on that last day. Every crime will receive its penalty on that last day. Evil will be done away with finally on that last day. That's, That's good news, especially with the things that are going on even today. Yeah. What I'm always reminded to, I remind myself a lot about when the last days are mentioned or mm-hmm. um, the judgment day. That could be tomorrow or today for, for, for any one of us. Sure. Because once we pass, that's right. That's it. That's right. You know, that, that's like the last day yeah. for, for, for me. Yeah. You know, so we have to keep that in mind, even in evangelizing, how urgent it Amen. is. That today's the day of salvation. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, that, that ought to be our motivation. We, we should have that sense of urgency. Um, yeah, amen. Uh, something even more personally uh, is the fact that our indwelling sin, which we struggle and fight against every day, every hour of our lives, that indwelling sin will be done away with on the last day. If you're a Christian, you know that's uh, soup for your soul. <laughs> uh, chicken soup for your soul. Remember that book? Um, and again, this is what we see Peter emphasizing. Even in verses 6 through 9. Let's look at 6 through 9. It says, In this you rejoice, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, that's, that's the point, that your sufferings will bring, when that moment comes, when Christ comes, it'll all make sense, all the sufferings, and it would, it would do nothing but enhance the glory of that very moment when Christ comes and brings his justice. I mean, he goes on, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. How many of us, you know, feel that way? We have not seen him, but you love him. I have not seen him. Yeah. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Is that our joy? (laughs) That ought to be. Obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of your souls. So, again, what is emphasized here is that the hope in salvation is essentially eschatological, meaning that it is a hope that is grounded on the end of what is to come. That's the grounding of our hope. That, that Christ will, will, will finish off all that was started, uh, beginning with uh, his coming on earth, you know, his dying, his living his life, his, his dying, his resurrection, his ascension. And then we have that final stage where we receive the grace that was planned for us, that the inheritance that was promised to us, justice that will be served, all that will be will be. Will, will come in the coming of Christ. 
we as Christians are able to get through the hardships of today, knowing that our Savior will come one day to make all things right. Now imagine, again, how powerful and significant that must have been to the people Peter was writing to, especially those who were being persecuted. But like them, this should also empower us to live today, not with our hopes in this present evil age, but rather with our hopes set on, notice he says, hope set fully, right? Having our hope set fully on the future grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This should, this should be the full scope of our hope. Um, and, and so that's, that's what's commanded there. That's the imperative that uh, Peter is laying out for believers who are pilgrims in this earth. And we, we ought to apply that uh, to us today. What's the second imperative? You see it on your handout. Oh, yes, ma'am. Please, yeah. Absolutely. Amen. And that you, you make a good point because often we think that we, we can't benefit from these things. It's just something that's coming in the future. Um, but when the Holy Spirit was uh, given to us, right, it dwells in us. Those benefits, we're, we're uh, experiencing some of those benefits even now where we have that peace, um, where we have, uh, we have perfect, we, we have a fellowship with God that wasn't there before. Uh, we can come to God with our, with our prayers. Um, all these things have been applied to you now. Uh, and, and more to come, of course, when, when Jesus comes. But you make a good point. We don't have to sit around waiting. The Lord has, has given us a down payment in the, with the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. So. And it's true joy, true content, amen. true peace. Yeah, yeah amen. We, we, we experience that even now. Amen. Fellowship of the saints. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is a, like a preview of what's to come. We, we get to experience some of it now with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's, that's a blessing. Now, the second imperative is be holy. Let's read uh, verses 14 through 16. Someone take that. Surround sound, right? Yeah. Now, right from the beginning in this passage, Peter tells his audience not to be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance, which seems to imply that the people who he's, whom he's addressing have some sort of history in living in sinful passions. Now, this hardly fits the description of a Jew, which, which is why many commentaries suggest that Peter was speaking to, to the majority of Gentile Christians and some Jewish Christians. But either way, the command is clear. They must not be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance. Now notice also that Peter commands this not so that his readers would know the way to become children of God, but rather it is because they are already children of God that Peter commands them to live in that reality. Right? He starts with, as obedient children. Right? You're already children. So as obedient, obedient children live this way. 
Uh, we see even in Peter's introduction of his letter, if you, if you have your Bibles, actually I have it here, sorry. In the introduction, uh, we can see the importance of obedience in the, in the Christian life and how that is part of, of who we are. Um, we see in Peter's introduction, starting with verse 1 through 2, he says, to those who are exile, I'm sorry, for those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bith- Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I hope you notice also the Trinitarian involvement in this passage, right? You see Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, But again, you can see in this verse that salvation includes, right, the election of the Father to choose us, to choose us to save us. We see in this passage a sanctifying work of the Spirit. You see in the last part the shed blood of Christ. But right before that, you see a transformed heart that's resulting in obedience to Christ. Right? For obedience to Jesus Christ. All this was accomplished so that we would obey. And again, this is, this is a result of a transformed heart. This is not something that you do to obtain everything else, right? Salvation. Uh, but this is, this is a result of what salvation does in the heart of a, of a, of a person who, who becomes saved. So obedience is important, and this goes with the call to be holy. And in our main text, uh, verse 15 and 16 says, uh, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter says this, but notice that he says it in contrast to being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, Since being holy means to be set apart, what does that say about following the passions of your former ignorance? It says that following the passions of your former ignorance meant that you were once like everyone else. The world, as unique, and and they're unique, when you see some of the things that the world does and the way they live, as unique as many of these people are of the world, or, or they may seem that way, They're all common in one area, and they're all common in the area of their loves, what they love, right? Um, So that's the one thing that they have in common. Uh, I I like, uh, I'm going to quote something from uh, The City of God by Augustine, and I like how he, he talks about the differences between the people of the world and, and the church, uh, he, he compares the two as two cities, right? The city of man and the city of God. And, and you'll see the differences there. He says, and I quote, We see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reacting to the point of contempt for God. But the heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. Right? So, to put it in simpler terms, these two cities, right, the city of man and the city of God, are societies within, with, with citizens who are distinguished by the standards by which they live. Right? The city of man live by the standards of the flesh, and the city of God 
live by the standards of the Spirit, or live by the Spirit. So when Peter calls believers to be holy for God is holy, he's, he's basically quoting Old Testament scripture. Uh, you'll see the same concept in Leviticus 11.45, where it says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And there it is. You shall, be, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. It is. Right. That's right. Chan- yeah, chances are you're not going to be numbered among the cool kids if, if, you're, uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian. Yeah, uh, yeah. These are these are good comments, and <clears throat> there are many other passages also in Leviticus that say the same thing, right? Be holy, for I am holy, which shows that Peter understood that the call for holiness wasn't wasn't only an old covenant requirement, right? I think Christians today often think, oh, you know, following God in a moral way was was the Old Testament. <clears throat> Right? Peter knew the Old Testament. Uh, he was familiar with it. He quotes it. But New Testament, New Testament believers, even today, still have an obligation to walk in holiness, even as, even as forgiven sinners. And I think that's where the confusion is. Often we think, uh, well, I'm forgiven. Everything is under the blood. And so there's this liberty, right? And you ought to feel a sense of liberty, right? You're no longer condemned. Um, but as a Christian... We're obligated to live as, people, as the people of God, right? Uh, be holy for I am holy. He's our king, we're his people, and we ought to live as, that, as if that reality is true. <clears throat> Not only because it's what's commanded, 
But also, there's a real, in a real sense, it is the desire of a believer. That's one of the effects of salvation. Um, so even when we consider the ways in which we are to be salt and light in the world, right? We live in the world. We work in the world. In whatever sphere you find yourself most in, it, whatever you do, it should never be at the expense of our obedience to Christ. In, the, in, in fact, the best way the best way to be a light in the world is to remain holy and to remain set apart so that others may inquire about the hope that is in us, right? Our hope in Christ. So Peter's not calling them to flee into the mountains, right? When we talk about being separate and being holy, we're not saying like the separatists who want to hide themselves in a mountain, right? Uh, we, we are in the world, right? We are involved in the world, um, we're, we're called to be holy in the midst of the world. And again, in this particular context, this is the call for the church uh, that, that Peter is, is, is writing the letter to. God is calling this church to be holy in Rome, where, where they are. This is because of grace shall we sin? God forbid. Yeah. Well, God forbid. Right. That's right. We, we shouldn't, right? Because of grace, you know, yeah. God forbid. Yeah. Yeah, so likewise, we're, we're called to live holy in the, midst of this, uh, in, in the midst of a society that rejects Christ. Mm-hmm. Being holy, right, because our Father is holy, because our city is not of the city of man, but rather the city of God. Let's look at the third imperative. Fear our Father. Let's read the. Uh, let's read seventeen through twenty-one. Can someone take that? If you can read it. So here we see that Peter describes God the Father as one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. In other words, God is a righteous judge who will not let anything or anyone slide if they're guilty. This reminds me of the passage in Exodus when God passes by Moses on on Mount Sinai uh, declaring who he is. Do you remember that passage? This is in Exodus 34. Six through seven. And the Lord is passing before him, and this is what he's proclaiming about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's scary. (laughs) This is who God is. He is righteous. The way that he judges, he doesn't take your sins and say, you know, it's all good, and he puts them under the, you know, like uh, when there's dirt on the floor and you sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't do that with your sins. And I think often we think about sins and we think about, you know, the big sins. But there are sins in the way that we think and the way that we move, the way that, the, the way that we live, um, the way that we sleep, the way that we dream. And God will bring justice to all of that. There's not one thing that's going to slide uh, before God. And this is, why, this is why us as Christians, we look crazy when we're out there uh, you know, open-air preaching, screaming at the people, telling them to repent and trust in Jesus Christ because God is not playing. God is not taking your sin and he's just going to be like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a gracious God. Don't worry about it. Just come in here, party with the saints. That's, that's not the God that is being described um, in Scripture. And it makes sense because all of us have a sense in us that desires justice, right? When someone does something wrong to us, we have that strong desire, man, they're, they're going to pay. That's, but the question is, why do we have that? And where do we get our idea of justice? Where, what do, who do we think we are to, to think that we know what's right and wrong and what someone deserves? But God, it's not the same thing. God knows what, what the person deserves, and, 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 and he will bring forth justice um, in that time. I, I saw a hand. Amen. Amen. And we're called to flee not just sin, but even the appearance of sin. We're supposed to flee from it. Right. Run away from even something that may even look like a sin. Right. I mean, it does say evil, but. Sure. Yeah. Sin. Right. Yeah. Amen. And this, this level of righteousness, this is who God is. This is his character. He, he can't not let sin slide. So when Peter tells believers, right, to conduct themselves with fear, and this is where we have, to th- we have to gird up our loins, our mind, you know, the loins of our brain here. Um, when Peter tells believers to conduct themselves with fear, he's not, suggestion, he's not suggesting that we live as though we don't have salvation, right? He's not saying, you know, you're saved, but live in fear because, you know, you might not be. The scriptures clearly says in Romans 8.1 that, that, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? If anything... This reality of who God is only exalts the gospel in such a way that ought to make us worship. Like, thank God that Jesus Christ stood in our place. If not, uh, we know 
um, that we would receive uh, justice and, 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 and eternal damnation. So again, for us who are in Christ, our sins have already been paid for. But question, then what is Peter saying? Is he saying that believers should live reverently? Or is he saying that believers should live in complete fear and terror of God? Answer, uh, if we read verse 18 along with it, which is the following verse, Peter brings up the fact that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. With this in mind, it must mean that our fear towards God must be more than just reverence, right? You know, we don't just pass by a church and do the cross. We don't just walk in quietly in church. Um, of course, there is a kind of reverence that we, we, we do because we know who God is. But it has to be more than that, right? It has to be more than just reverence, but at the same time, it should never be a fear that denies the sacrifice of Christ's shed blood. It's a kind of fear that recognizes that God, the God that's described in Exodus, right? We, we, also, we ought to recognize who this, this God is. But also a fear that does not contradict the confidence that we have in the gospel. So, you know, you've got to find, find that area right in between. This is the fear that Peter calls believers to have. And this is important because many today claim to be Christian, who claim to be Christians have completely abandoned any sense of fear towards God. And so when it, they approach God casually, right? Like, you know, we come to church and, you know, worship the Lord. We got our feet kicked up and uh, just completely irreverent. Um, we, we don't, you know, we, we know, we, we feel that we're saved. So we come in with a confidence that, that, contradicts the character that we read um, in Scripture of, of how, how God is described. Well, I think the, the yeah. psalm that says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Yeah. Like, how does that work together? But it's it like, does. It's like we know that we, we, we can fear Him. He can crush us at any moment that we sin. For sure. And His grace is so abounding in us. Amen. So, yeah. so there's that balance of saying, you know, we do fear him. Right. Fear is fear. Right. It's not reverence. Yeah. It's, it's, reverence is in fear. Sure. But, but there's, there is, more, yeah. Yeah, there's a joy in knowing that. So, Amen. You know, when, I, when that psalm first caught my fan, my attention, I was so blessed. You know, Amen. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. Amen. Rejoice sure. and trembling. Yeah. No, I don't think that we can serve him. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And And that, that's, that good news of the gospel is so glorious, especially with the backdrop of the fact that God is so holy and he doesn't let sin slide. And the fact that we're forgiven, uh, this should cause us to, 
to, to, to live in worship and to be, to have that heart that is filled with thanksgiving. It, it, it should be, it should break our hearts um, and cause us to worship God all the days of our lives. I mean, without that element of the character of God being holy, um, I, mean, I, think, I think we lose, um, the, it cheapens the gospel. Amen. Good words. Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You got a verse? Oh, that's the verse. Okay. Amen. Let me write that down. Psalm 211. Okay. Moving on. Uh, so again, this is important because many today claim, claim to be Christians and completely abandon any sense of fear uh, towards God. And as a result, they don't seek to be holy, right? They don't seek that command to, to, to walk in holiness and pursue holiness. Um, now, Peter commands this to his audience, right? In verse 17, with, a, with an emphasis on the fact that, th- that they are exiles, Right? He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Referring to their limited time in this world. Right? All of us are here for a moment. And, and this is important to keep in mind because as pilgrims and as exiles in this world, we as believers only live purposefully and fully when we live with a holy fear of the Lord. That's when, when, when things begin to be purposeful and your life all of a sudden starts to you know, find meaning. Amen. Yes. So what was that? Psalm what? 119. Oh, okay. Like Yoda? You mean the Star Wars character? My, my Jedi master? Yoda? Okay. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Uh, again, Living a, a life with a holy fear of the Lord. This is the wisdom of Job, right? You guys read Job. Uh, when he says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Uh, uh, this is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes when the book concludes by stating, the fe- fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Right? You see the, the wisdom there. And again, this is the wisdom of Psalms, Proverbs, the book of Judges. Therefore, it is the wisdom of Peter as he exhorts the believers, right? He's, he's, all, he's giving them this wisdom. Um, uh, and and this, is, this is a true fact of the Christian life, to live in fear um, of the God that we serve, not as, not as uh, people who are condemned, but they're people who are saved and truly a people of God. Uh, let me wrap this up. Uh, finally, we conclude with Peter mentioning the object of their hope. Verses 17 to 20, 21, he's, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, he's talking about Jesus, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter here is reminding the readers again that that what Jesus Christ accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection was known by God before the foundations of the world. Therefore, the holy life to which we're called to live that trusts in God's promises, 
That's the life that we're called to live. It's a holy life, but it basically means to live trusting in what God has said about you, what God said will come. That's, that's the holy life. Um, trusting in God and the work that he accomplished and not our works or the works of the world or the works of the flesh. Verse 21 ends by saying, so that your faith and hope are in God. In other words, holy living is simply a life that recognizes God as most precious above all things and lives consistent with that hope. Peter's not a moralist, right? He's not saying that we ought to be good for goodness sake, you know, like the Santa Claus jingle. Uh, He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. That's not what he's saying. Yeah, so you better watch out. You better not come. You better not. He, he's not saying be good for goodness sake, right? Peter is simply calling believers to live a life consistent with whom they serve. If you serve the world, that's the fruit you'll bear. If you serve God, you will bear fruit. You will live, live holy. You live in, in fear. You will have hope in the coming Messiah. Therefore, As foreigners of this world, we ought to place our hope fully on the grace that will come when Christ returns. And we live as sojourners who walk in holiness because God is holy. And we fear our Father not as condemned people, but as people who know that God is mighty and he doesn't play. That concludes the message. Um, Next week, we'll we'll go from verses 22 and a little bit into chapter 2. So any, any questions or thoughts, final thoughts or final questions? That was the goal for Israel, that the world would see their, their separateness, their distinctness, so that they would know the God that they serve. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah that's a little different. That's a little too far from my taste, but yeah, that's different. <laughs> yeah. Thoughts, questions? If not, I'll go ahead and pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage of Holy Scripture. We recognize that we too are pilgrims in this world who seek a better country, namely the new heavens and the new earth, where our hearts will yearn to be in, because we know that we will dwell with you with no hindrance. And until then, let us live lives of holiness and godly fear, placing our hope not in this earthly kingdom, but in the hope that is to be revealed in the return of our King, Jesus Christ. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. You're welcome.